Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for joining us on KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. Well, we've just closed out another week of gun violence in this country with the attack on congressional members in Virginia and right here at home with the San Francisco UPS workplace shooting. So once again, we're going to talk about this public health and safety crisis on In-Depth and common sense solutions, which also fall within the legal bounds of the Second Amendment. My guest is Robin Thomas, the executive director of the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, which last year merged with the group Americans for Responsible Solutions. Robin Thomas, thank you very much for joining us this weekend on In-Depth. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Before we begin talking about the events of this past week and what you and your organization mean by sensible gun laws to prevent violence. Tell us a little bit about how the organization got started. It's based here in San Francisco, and because of a San Francisco tragedy, that was its inception. Yeah, so in 1993, there was a disgruntled client of a law firm in San Francisco who went to Nevada and bought assault weapons that weren't legal in California, went to the 101 California Street office, went up to the law firm as well as some other businesses in 101 California Street and shot, in the end, including himself, 16 people. And in the wake of that tragedy, the legal community of San Francisco really came together and decided that they needed to make something positive come out of this tragedy. And they were going to try and marshal and rally the resources and, and, and power of the legal world to find solutions to gun violence to prevent future tragedies. And so that was the inception. In the early years, they focused on the federal assault weapon ban, which was passed, and then unfortunately later sunset. And then we switched to focusing more on state law, because that seems to be where there's a lot more opportunity, particularly of late. California has always been our focal point because we're here and because there's good political will and we have a huge population with a complex gun problem. And we've been incredibly successful here in California, getting about 60 new laws passed, including Prop 63, which we can talk about a bit later, which was just passed in November by the voters. Um, and gun violence in California has dropped by about just under 60 percent in the last 20 years. So hugely impactful work, not just on the policy side, but through intervention and other strategies. And now we do that work in states across the country. In your mission statement, you talk about that there is a way to balance the protections of the Second Amendment for those who are concerned about their right to bear arms with the prevention of gun violence, with common sense safety laws. And uh, on your website, it says, and we know how to do it. So there are certainly people listening who are concerned about any encroachment on what they perceive to be their Second Amendment right, as the Supreme Court in 2008 interpreted Heller that said, yes, you don't have to be part of a military group to own a personal weapon that that an individual can have one and use one for self-defense and other non-military related purposes. So having said all that, if you know how to, and if we have a, as a law-abiding society know how to protect Second Amendment rights, 
yet curb gun violence? What is that answer? I mean, it's such a fascinating conversation to base it around the Second Amendment, what it does mean and do and what it doesn't. I mean, I'm a constitutional lawyer at my core, so I find the fact that we are in a very new area of constitutional uh, jurisprudence is fascinating because most of our constitutional rights of our civil liberties defined under the, the Bill of Rights have been fleshed out by the Supreme Court for centuries. And the Second Amendment really has only become an area of active you know, litigation and, and jurisprudence in the last 10 years. So you have this really new area. Now, I believe in 2008, the Supreme Court actually overturned precedent, which did in the past hold that those rights, those rights to keep and bear arms were related to a well, well-regulated militia. But in 2008, the court said, no, you have an individual right, but it was very limited to have a gun in your home for self-defense. So that was what the court actually held. They didn't say anything about having the right to assault weapons or being able to carry them outside of your home or that prohibitions on certain types of individuals were a problem. So they really upheld most of what exists and only basically struck down a complete ban on gun ownership. So very narrow decision. But the other side, those folks who are strong advocates for gun rights, took that and ran with it and have filed hundreds, if not thousands, of cases challenging existing gun regulations based on Heller. From my perspective, um, it's been a waste of time. About 95% of those decisions have upheld existing regulations, minus a few outliers. Um, And it wastes a lot of resources. And it makes it very difficult to um, implement the kinds of solutions we're talking about. But back to your original question, which is, how do we balance the two? you now, for sure, there will never be confiscation of firearms in this country unless we have a constitutional amendment, which is practically impossible, particularly on this issue. The Supreme Court changes dramatically and completely overrules their decision in Heller, which is very unusual. Um, you're, no one's taking your guns away. You have the right to those guns. But, or I should say, and, that doesn't mean we can't be really intelligent, thoughtful, and figure out ways to reduce unnecessary gun violence. Now, gun violence in America is a very complicated problem. We have about 117, 115,000 shootings last year. And those break down into suicides, homicides, unintentional shootings. And then even within homicides, you have domestic violence, you have urban gun violence, which is a sort of a different set of issues. In the case of what happened yesterday, you have workplace violence. In one instance, it was possibly some mental health issues. We don't really know yet. Certainly some domestic violence issues. So you have to start by being willing to break down gun violence, peel it back a little into the types of gun violence. And then based on what you want to talk about, the solutions for each issue are different. So for suicide, it has to do with safe storage around depressed people or teenagers. It might have to do with making it a little more sophisticated how we evaluate mental health and gun ownership, not the system we have now, which isn't nuanced or well-designed to protect those in crisis. So there's all these types of policies and solutions. Some of them are laws and some are not. In the case of urban gun violence, I believe that the intervention strategies that are being used in places like Richmond, California, and Oakland and elsewhere are very, very impactful. Um, So you, you have to be willing to dig in a little to, to talk about those solutions, and, and not everybody is. They'd much rather say, well, either you're going to take my guns away 
or everybody gets to carry them wherever they want. And the middle ground is huge. I mean, here in California, starting next year, you're going to have to get a background check when you buy ammunition. And we regulate all kinds of unsafe guns, whether it's large capacity ammunition, whether it's assault weapons, whether it's junk guns. So we've gone really far in regulating all kinds of guns in all kinds of ways here. And then other states, um, the story I sometimes tell is that the shooter at the Safeway parking lot who shot Gabby Giffords in the head had not broken a single Arizona law until he pulled the trigger. He was carrying a loaded assault weapon with several large capacity ammunition magazines through a crowded parking lot into a, into a supermarket walked right up to her with that gun and he still had and he didn't have a background check on that purchase. He still hadn't broken any law cuz Arizona's laws are so weak that he didn't need to get a permit to carry that weapon, have any training. Uh, those guns were not registered. There's literally nothing there to regulate. So, we have this very very broad range and deciding how far the politicians and those who make those laws want to go to prevent different types of gun violence is a fascinating question because it is a very broad span in this country. At the beginning, you mentioned that the work of your organization is that of looking now mostly at state law. But as you just described, the the variances of, of law between states is so wide. The the situation of the, the shooter in Alexandria, that was a legally purchased and registered weapon in his home state of Indiana. So I guess I'm asking is, you know, working through local and state laws is a way to um, look at additional regulation, safety measures. But is it possible, do you foresee, to ever have a uniform across the nation, a uniform policy? I mean, ideally, we'd have at least some semblance of a national regulatory system, whether it's universal background checks, whether it's additional regulation of the most dangerous types of guns like assault weapons and large capacity ammunition. It would include holding the industry accountable for marketing and products defects and all the things that they get a lot of immunity from currently. Um, it would mean... Some, I think because you can carry that gun from Indiana to Virginia, or in, in our case, from Nevada or Arizona into California, um, I, I do think we do need some sort of federal regulatory system in order for it to be effective. That being said, I'm a big believer that what's right for San Francisco may not be the same thing that's right for rural Wyoming in terms of regulation. They have, they have ironically, much higher gun rates of gun death in Wyoming than we do in California, much, much, much higher. And per, ca that's, per capita, you mean? Per capita, obviously of course. the population yes, yes, doesn't no. match. But, Always when you talk about yeah. gun death rates, it's per capita, because mm -hmm. otherwise it's impossible right. to compare. But Wyoming has a far higher gun death rate than we do, even though we have all these urban you know, gun issues, et cetera, because we have all of this regulation. And even though we have gun death, it tends to be... Um, actually much less than you would think, whereas in Wyoming, they have very, very high suicide rates. And so that actually skyrockets the gun death rate and very little regulation. So I, I think my point is just that I'm not opposed to saying, yes, we need some sort of regulatory framework at the federal level so we can make a, a sort of real dent in the problem. But that, that being said, it doesn't mean you have to have the exact same types of laws. You know, because they have a suicide problem in Wyoming, maybe the types of regulations necessary to address that are very different from what we need here to address the types of gun violence and the political will and the, you know, if you're talking about an urban environment, 
carrying your shotgun because of bears is not an issue. Whereas if you live in rural Wyoming, maybe that's something that needs to be handled differently. So I'm a believer that we need to figure out what's viable as a federal system and make that happen. And then beyond that, we allow for different states to regulate based on what their needs are. We're talking about gun violence and what can be done about it within the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Second Amendment. My guest is the executive director of the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, Robin Thomas. I'm Jane McMillan. You mentioned at the outset Prop 63, and you just mentioned again um, the the uh, ammunition law here in California. Can you, first of all, bring us up to speed on the specifics of that law and uh, as it goes into effect and legally... Can there uh, arguments be made legally against Prop 63 and its implementation that it somehow invades someone's privacy by knowing restricting purchase of ammunition? Is that anything that was covered under Heller in the in the Supreme Court ruling of 2008? So Prop 63, for me, it was a very exciting opportunity. We drafted and, and co-sponsored Prop 63 along with Gavin Newsom, so we were involved from the inception. And we looked hard at a number of things. First of all, where the loopholes are still in California law, even though there's a lot of political will and we have strong regulation, there's still types of laws that we haven't been able to get through. We had a law on requiring reporting of lost and stolen firearms, which is in there, that had been passed by the legislature twice and vetoed by the governor. Lost and stolen reporting laws have evidentially been proven to reduce the trafficking of guns and and gun death rates when it's implemented. So we put that in there. So lost and stolen reporting, if you have a gun and it's stolen or you lose, you got to report that so that we know, A, you're not trafficking those guns. So it creates a a sort of self-accountability. And because in California we do have some records, it really helps law enforcement to keep track of what's happening with the guns out there. Um, We also have ammunition background checks, a complete ban on all possession of large capacity ammunition. We have already banned the transfer and sale, but we hadn't banned possession. Now, because ammunition, it doesn't have like traceable markings on Mm -hmm. it. There's no way for law enforcement to actually enforce the no sale and transfer if you're allowed to possess, because theoretically you can't buy new ones, but we all know it's not that hard. And then if law enforcement comes upon someone with large capacity ammunition magazines, they can't do anything about it. So now you don't get to have those anymore in California. It has been challenged in the court by the NRA already. Uh, It's supposed to go into effect on July 1st. And there was an emergency um, court hearing on Tuesday this week in San Diego, federal court judge. There's a chance it might get put on hold so we can go up to the Ninth Circuit. So you might see a court decision already this month, which will either uphold or uh, put a restraining order on that taking effect pending further review. Ultimately, we didn't put anything in there that we don't believe has is absolutely compliant with the Second Amendment jurisprudence and that has any real chance of being struck down. We were careful because we know it's going to get challenged. They challenge everything. And this is edgy stuff. You know, ammunition background checks isn't has never been done before. So we kept that in mind and made sure we were kind of within the, the confines of what's reasonable. Um, back to that, there's a few other parts of it. One of my favorite parts of it is a relinquishment section. Now, right now, if you commit a crime and you're convicted, you're a felon, you are not allowed to possess a gun. If you um, are convicted of a certain domestic violence misdemeanors or um, mental health prohibitions, you cannot have a gun. But we never had a comprehensive system in place to get your guns away from you. So, Once you've been convicted of or, or yeah, have that on your record. Exactly. And there's something called the APPS database, Armed Prohibited Persons Database. California DOJ has it. 
And that database is the overlay of people who we know have purchased guns in California, we have records of that, and who now have become prohibited. And they cross-check those two databases, and there's 20,000 people on that list, or 20,000 weapons on that list, that are owned by people who are prohibited now, right? So now DOJ has to get their officers to go and get those guns away, because we never had a system where, say, you're convicted of a crime and you meet with your probation officer, judge, whatever, and they say, okay, here's the requirements of your probation or prison time, whatever it's going to be, and what do you, wh- what is your plan to get rid of your guns now? So there was no relinquishment process mm-hmm. that was built into the system, and this Prop 63 now does that. It's also groundbreaking. There's nothing quite like it anywhere in the country. So it's also California stepping up to protect our citizens and creating a model that once we get it rolling and it's working, other states can adopt it, which is what happens all the time. And we need to mention that this was passed by the public, the oh, voters. Yeah, this I was... think it's 63% of the vote. So really passed quite easily. Another component, though, and that is the heartbreaking um, story of what happened in Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. This young man with mental illness, uh, the parents knew he was at risk called police to let them know that he had guns, that he was at risk, but there was no legal mechanism in place to take guns away from someone when another family member or or is reported to be disturbed. We have one now. We actually passed it the year after the Alta Vista UCSB shooting. In California here, it's called a GVRO, Gun Violence Restraining Order, and it allows family members or law enforcement to petition for a temporary removal of someone's guns when they're in a time of crisis. And then they have a hearing within a very short period of time because it is a constitutional right Mm -hmm. in order to either challenge that um, assessment and and get the guns back or they can let it stand if they agree that they shouldn't have those guns. Um, And GVROs, they have a different name now. It was put on the ballot in Washington state this past year. They called it an ERPO, Extreme Risk Protective Order. And it passed in in Washington. And now it's been introduced in about 20 states because there's a shooting. And I always get the question right after the shooting, well, what could have been done to prevent this? Right. And in a lot of instances, that's a hard question to answer because these are complex problems. But in the case of UCSB, there was a very clear answer, which is a GVRO would have prevented this. His parents knew. Police went there. All they had to do was take those guns away, prohibit him from buying them for a couple of weeks, have a hearing, figure out if he's mentally stable. And then this would not have happened. The pushback against laws or statutes like this is that that it's a preemptive removal of a weapon that without any violent crime on someone's record uh, is an infraction of the Second Amendment. Um, It's the same way that we do domestic violence restraining orders is that you can get an, an emergency injunction, an emergency order, which is what this GVRO is. It has to be very short, and you have to have the opportunity for a full hearing on your rights. So there has to be due process to protect that constitutional right. You can't just take someone's guns away for as long as you want. So I believe in the California statutes, it's 21 days. You have to have a hearing within 21 days in order for it to stand. That's the maximum amount of time, and that's about as fast as our courts can handle it. So you have this opportunity. Now, sure, they're going to argue any removal is too long. But ultimately, with any constitutional right, the First Amendment's probably the most strictly 
um, interpreted of of our rights, of our civil rights. And yet there are limits on it. You can't scream fire in a movie theater. You can't lie about someone and hurt them, even though you're, it's your speech. There are limits. Your rights end, in some senses, where mine begin. Same thing with the Second Amendment. You have the right. The Supreme Court is the only one who really gets to tell us what is the construct of that right. It's one of my frustrations that there's 5,000 pundits out there telling you what your Second Amendment right is and they're going to abuse it. No, the Supreme Court is going to tell us what your Second Amendment right is and we're going to follow that. Because if anything, we believe in our system and our courts and even we might not agree with them, but we follow them. You know, is removal for 21 days an an issue? Of course. That's why we make sure you get a quick hearing. That's why it only is intended to be used in times of extreme crisis. And it can only be, at this point at least, used by law enforcement or family members. So we're really restricting it. We're not saying your neighbor can do it or your best friend or your, you know, pissed off ex-girlfriend. Like, this is a limited uh, situation intended really. And it's not, frankly, part of it's to protect others. And a big part of it's to protect the person. And and almost all of these incidences of mass shootings, the shooter ends up dead as well. And so, you know, obviously all of those lives we would rather have saved. And and sometimes taking someone's guns away is about that. And sometimes it's about they present a risk to themselves more often than not. If you're just tuning into KCBS In-Depth, we are discussing gun violence and what can be done about it within the legal bounds of the Second Amendment. My guest is Robin Thomas, Executive Director of the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. I'm Jane McMillan. On this program, we have talked about this topic uh, many times, but we're talking about it now because we, in the past few days, have just experienced yet another mass shooting, both here in San Francisco at home and also uh, in Alexandria. And you also, at the beginning, talked about different uh, groups who are impacted by these types of shootings and and connections between shooters and workplace or workplace violence and domestic violence. And what do we know about workplace shootings? There's a lot of them. And this is something that I think is getting more traction that we need to understand better. A lot of mass shootings tend to be workplace shootings for a variety of reasons. And, you know, whether it's because this is where people spend most of their time and have most of their relationships and most of their problems and whatever. This tends to be domestic violence and workplace violence are two huge parts of the problem. So, you know, one of the things that we look at, for example, is concealed carry. So you have all these people who can get permits. It came up in the Virginia shooting because he did have a concealed carry permit, Um, even though the other side argues we need more guns. Theoretically, that would enable people like that to take their guns everywhere. It's, It's a bill that's pending in Washington. But you know, the the idea that you should be able to carry guns anywhere, including into your workplace or into schools without those workplaces or schools having the right to say we don't want guns here is, is part of this debate as well. Well, and and how, how would you speak to somebody if they were sitting here saying, if I had been inside that UPS building and I had a gun, I may have been able to stop this before it happened. What are the statistics of of that happening? or That never happens, honestly. I mean, it happens one in a million, but what happens far more often, there's been some really fascinating work done on that question because the NRA's favorite tar- talking point is only a good guy with a gun can stop a bad guy with a gun. The irony of, of it being, what is a good guy? The person who's, because the, the guy who had the concealed carry permit before he started shooting people in Arlington, he was a good guy until he overnight became a bad guy. So it doesn't really hold water. That being said, 
almost everything, every study, you can talk to law enforcement about this, you can look at the research. It just doesn't happen that way. In, in Tucson, there was a man inside the Safeway that had a concealed weapon. He heard gunshots, came running out, and almost shot the hero who had tackled the shooter to the ground. Uh, there was a man who had a gun, uh, one of the recent school shootings, not Sam, maybe San Bernardino, a uh, former, uh, former military who had a concealed weapon. And he said, there's no way I was going out there because the SWAT team would probably think I was the shooter and shoot me. So there's, you know, there's people who had loaded weapons in Aurora. There's people, there's uh, 2020, if you ever have a minute, did a study where they armed all these students, taught them how to shoot, put them in a classroom and told them someone was going to come in in the middle and that they should do that. They should get the bad guy. Not one student in that classroom got the bad guy. What they did get was shot themselves by the bad guy, shot, shot themselves with the gun and shot each other. Not one of them. And they knew they were trained. They all had guns and they knew someone was coming and still not one of them shot him. So, I mean, law enforcement is effective and they hit their target in crisis situations one out of four times. So if you're not trained and you don't handle crisis well and you're not handling guns every day, is it really viable that these are the, you know, it's, life is not a movie and it's not a video game. Unfortunately, it's a fantasy. It's not the way things happen in reality. I want to uh, end, and sadly we're running out of time, but um, this this discussion is never going to end, so we hope you'll come back. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned Gabby Giffords, uh, Congresswoman, former Congresswoman Giffords, and what happened to her in Arizona at that Safeway. And she put out a statement following uh, both shootings uh, that happened this past Wednesday. And what she called for, which I thought was in incredibly insightful, was courage. Mm. Courage uh, as a nation to come together and think about what could be done and then the courage to look at ways to do it. What is the next biggest item on the Law Center's agenda in terms of a common sense solution within the law of the Second Amendment protections that is being worked on or should be worked on as a nation that could mitigate what we're seeing? More quickly. I mean, we need to get rid of these absurd bills that are pending in Congress right now. For example, deregulating silencers was supposed to be heard. They canceled it because of the shooting of a congressperson, but Congress was supposed to be doing a hearing on de allowing silencers to proliferate. There's bills to allow reciprocity for carrying concealed weapons. So if you can carry a weapon in Arizona, you can carry a weapon in New York City. Absurd. These, I mean, there's some absurd bills being considered that need to be kiboshed. And what we need to do is talk about ways to implement regulation that don't interfere with Second Amendment rights, universal background checks, regulating really dangerous, unsafe guns, um, having training requirements for people who want to carry loaded weapons in public. We need safe storage laws to protect children. We need to get guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them, so we need relinquishment. We need to look seriously at domestic violence and how we can improve. That's a huge part of the problem, improve those regulations. I mean, I think what we need is an intelligent conversation about the simplest, most straightforward ways to address various aspects of gun violence that don't infringe on your you know, individual law-abiding right to have a gun in your home for self-defense. And there's, there is so much that we can do. I mean, in California, we have a hundred good laws. They've all been upheld by the courts. And everyone who wants, I mean, we have got millions and millions and millions and millions of privately held guns in California, and that's okay because we have a system where we're doing our best to make sure we have the minimum amount of collateral damage from all of those guns. So 
I think what Gabby's referring to, and we wholeheartedly support, she's actually our partner organization, is let's stop taking sides. This isn't about I like guns and you hate guns or I want to take your guns and I don't understand guns. Let's talk about what it means to have private gun ownership in the U.S. in a way that reduces some of this collateral damage that is just, it's it's tearing us apart. There were 117,000 shootings last year in the U.S. People shot with guns, 117,000. That's one person every five minutes, 300 every single day in this country. And if we're not having a conversation about what to do about that, it's on us as a country that this is the case. So let's start somewhere would be my deepest hope. Robin Thomas, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for having me. My guest on KCBS today has been Robin Thomas, the executive director of the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, based in San Francisco. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Jane McMillan. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. and 8.30 p.m. And now available for download at kcbs.com. For all news, 740 and FM 106.9, KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 